Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you on this beautiful summer morning, sticky bun morning. What more could we ask for? Well, you've watched the uh, Emery's in the video, so you know it's an impact Sunday. That's why we're going to start a new series on Connect. Uh, that may seem like a little bit of a disconnect, but actually our two values always work together. And in actuality, they always work together. You can't impact someone's life or be impacted by God unless there's a connection. And whenever there's a connection, there will be an impact, positively or negatively. So our two values always work together from God to us and from us to others as we continue what Jesus started. Well, we're going to start our series on Connect by looking at a passage that primarily focuses on our connection with God, but you're going to see that it quickly spills over into our connecting with other people. But before we get to the passage, I want to talk a little bit about our context, because we live in a context of disconnection. Have you noticed that? Let me uh, explain it this way. I belong to a couple of small groups. One of them meets a couple times a month. And uh, the format of this group's a little different in that a few days before the meeting, someone in the group will kind of send out whatever we're going to do that, do that time together. And I remember a few weeks ago, uh, we had a meeting, and so somebody sent out about a week before, hey, we're going to watch a video. So we will all watch the video before the small group discussion. And it was by Clay Scroggins. And it was kind of interesting, Clay begins by talking about three revolutions, that we live in a period of revolution where everything seems to be changing, and you'll see how this connects in a couple of minutes. The first revolution he mentioned was the revolution of wealth, and how wealth has moved from land, physical resources, natural resources, to money. It wasn't that long ago when wealth was measured primarily and only in how much stuff you own, how much property you had, how many cattle you owned, how much corn could you grow, another crop. Well, now all of that's changed, and now it isn't only land, natural resources, it's money, and we're moving to cryptocurrency and something else. That transition is profound, and it's changing how society works. The second revolution he spoke of is work, and I know you've all experienced this, have you noticed that work has moved from people to machines? And it doesn't matter what occupation you have, machines have been increasing, not just through the industrial revolution, but the computer revolution. The movement is from people doing most of the labor to machines doing most of the labor. And isn't that accelerating right now? As the labor shortage is felt throughout the country and around the world, the call for more machinery, more robotics continues to increase. That revolution changes how we operate as a society, how we interact or don't have to interact. Here's another revolution, knowledge. Have you noticed how wisdom is really no longer what's most sought after? Now it's information. How was wisdom... Um, transferred. Well, wisdom was transferred parent to child, grandparent to grandchild, teacher to student, the learned to the unlearned. How is information transferred now? On your phone. It's at your fingertips. Young people don't need older people that are wise anymore. In fact, young people, and even those of us in the room that may not be that young, we test what we're told with our phones, right? 
We test what our parents tell us by Googling if they're right. We test what our teachers are saying by seeing out if it's right. And so the movement has been from wisdom. How does knowledge and information work to information, just the accumulation of fact after fact after fact? Well, I wanna add one to what uh, Clay spoke of. COVID, COVID has, has moved us from connection. And maybe you think, I was never really tightly connected. I'll tell you this, you were more connected before COVID than you were during COVID. We've moved from connection to isolation. In fact, these past 18 months hasn't stalled. It's accelerated those other revolutions, right? And so here's my guess. Um, everything that I read says, the change by everybody being isolated has accelerated some of those changes by more than five years. Some of you grandparents never thought you'd FaceTime or Zoom until you couldn't see your grandkids. Then all of a sudden you were figuring out how to do it, right? And now we've used technology. How many of you thought two years ago you would do most of your banking on your phone? No. All of those technological changes, all of those things have been accelerated. So we have moved from an old world to a new world, and we're not quite sure what the new world's going to look like. But I'll tell you this, the new world, and right now the world, is more disconnected than it was beforehand. And it may not have felt real connected for you before. It's more disconnected now. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We have received lots of benefits from these transitions. I mean, life is easier, right? It's more comfortable. You know, prosperity is increased. But one downside, one of the costs, disconnection, isolation, one of the major problems in the world today is loneliness. Well, these revolutions haven't worked to solve that. These revolutions are actually compounding and accelerating that. That's the context in which we live. If we do nothing, we'll be carried along by the stream of our context. So this series of connect, we're going to have to put some things into practice to work against the cultural current. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15, and we're going to look at maybe the most radical passage on connection in the Bible. Now, again, we're going to kind of alternate week by, it won't be that clean week by week, but we're going to alternate between connect with God, connect with others, connect with God, connect with others. But there's a lot of spillover. They're not mutually exclusive. They kind of work together, but we're primarily going to focus on, in John 15, our connection with God. So you follow along as I read the first 13 verses or so. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. A passage of connection. And do you see them coming together? Um, Jesus gives love one another. That's the other piece. But it's based on our being connected to him. Well, uh, in our time left, we're, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at connection, kind of the picture. We're going to look at connection being necessary for life, needed for growth, and nurtured by the Father. Necessary for life. Um, you see that in the passage? I mean, you can't. Think of the illustration without recognizing if the branch is not in the vine, the branch is dead. It withers, it dries up, it's good for nothing except to be thrown into the fire and burn. The branch can't bear fruit if it's not in the vine. The branch can't bear leaves if it's not in the, in the vine. The branch, in order to have life, has to be in the vine. Now, if we were writing the illustration today, um, maybe you wouldn't use vine and branches. Maybe you'd use charging your cell phone. Uh, I don't know about you, you know, the older my cell phone gets, the less it keeps a charge. What do you have to do? You have to charge it. But the vine and branches illustration is better than charging cell phone illustration, right? Because if you're charging your cell phone, you charge it in order to unplug it and carry it without the charge, but you can't unplug the branch and have the branch wander away for 12 hours or so and then it's to come back to the vine it's a permanent relationship. It has to remain. It has to abide. It has to continue. You realize how intimate, essential that relationship is? You know, the Bible uses lots of pictures to describe our relationship with Jesus. But this is maybe the most life-giving the mo or the deepest of them. For example, we are connected to God. He is our teacher. We're students. Oh, but this is deeper than that. We're connected as shepherd to sheep. Oh, but this is deeper than that. We're connected as clay to a potter, but this is deeper than that. We're connected as children to a father, but this is deeper than that. Husband and wife, deep, it's even deeper than that, right? This is a connection that begins with the establishment of the relationship and never ends and is never severed. That's amazing. This connection is necessary for life. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, you can do lots of stuff, but nothing of eternal significance, nothing that really satisfies deep down, nothing that benefits other people. This relationship, this connection with Christ is necessary for life. But not just that, it's necessary for growth. Now, if you think about it, the purpose of the branch is to produce fruit. That's one of the purposes. Well, you can't produce fruit unless the branch is somehow connected and in the vine. And so Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. No branch can bear fruit unless it remains in the vine. Neither can you produce fruit unless you remain in me. There has to be that connection. Now, you're probably saying, yeah, but like, what do I have to contribute to that? Um, it's kind of interesting that in real life, you know, the branch doesn't have a whole lot to do. It's kind of stuck in the vine. It can't do a whole lot. But in this passage, Jesus says there are some things we can do. In fact, he mentions two things that we need to do. Number one, his words remain in us. Do you notice that? His words remain in us. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. How are you 
cooperating with this work of the gospel and the work of God to allow his words to remain in you. Well, hopefully, yeah. Gathering together as a community, kind of like this, is part of that process. We gather together, we hear from God's word, we hear what God's word is doing in each other's lives. We have conversations outside and inside the auditorium. You're allowing it to happen that way, rubbing shoulders with people whose word, God's word is impacting them. Um, students these days are uh, looking at some spiritual disciplines. And so they've asked a number of people on staff if they would come and film a short little video on some of the different spiritual disciplines. So they asked me to do one, and uh, I wound up doing one, I guess, last week or so, on study, kind of the word. And um, I wasn't quite sure exactly how to tackle that, but I, I wound up talking about this. What is our posture, or what position do we take when we come to the Scripture? Like, what position do you take? Or in other words, how do you read the Bible or think about the Bible? So, you know, we talk sometimes 15 minutes a day. You know, that, that'd be a great start. Sit down, you know, get a little input. What God wants, allow Jesus' words to dwell in you, read the Bible. But what posture do you read the Bible from? Um, we don't read the Bible as a lawyer looking for loopholes. You know, lawyers make a whole lot of money getting their clients out of contracts they sign by finding loopholes in the contract. That's not how we read the Bible. We don't read the Bible as an attorney scouring the fine print, looking for a way for us to get out of something. That's not our posture. We don't read the Bible as a teacher or a student looking for things I can share with my students. Right? Do you ever do that? I know there's pressure on small group leaders. I know there's pressure on teachers. Hey, I need something really cool to say. I want to impress my small group tonight. So I need to find something really exciting in here so I can share it. Yeah, but our posture shouldn't be reading for others. Um, the best way is that what Jesus says, what we find first impacts us through us, then impacts others. Not just, you know, kind of from Jesus to them as I get these cool things to say. We don't read the Bible as a Pharisee, taking the things we read and building a ladder from which I can be accepted by God. You ever do that? I know there's a temptation to do that. We take the rules, we take the do's and the don'ts, and we kind of build the rungs of the ladder. If it's not do's and don'ts, maybe it's correct theological statements. So we're going to come up with the right theology, and we use the right theological statements almost like rungs in a ladder, and the motivation behind that is, if I get my theology right, if I get all the do's and don'ts down, I stay away from the things I shouldn't do, I do the things I should do, I can find acceptance with God. No, that's not how we read the Bible. We're not Pharisees finding a way to God on our own. We read the Bible as recipients of God's love. We read the Bible as those that are weak, those that are poor and needy, those that are being refreshed and finding all of our needs met in Jesus, the one to whom the Bible points. That's how we read the Bible, as a needy person, but yet someone who's loved, accepted, and cared for by God. That's how we read the Bible. 
And so then our motivation becomes when we read something, not how can I do this to earn? No, I need to do these things that I know God loves because my pleasure is giving him pleasure. I want to live how he wants me to live. I want my life to resound with what he wants because I know that pleases him. That's my motivation. That's radically different. What's our posture? What's your posture when you read? What should it be? Well, it's not just words. We also uh, read the Bible and to remain in his love. Notice that? We remain it. Now, remain in my, remain in his word. Now, they're not mutually exclusive again, right? Where do you learn about God's love? Well, you learn about it perfectly in the Bible. I mean, you can imagine it. You can sit on a hill and look at the clouds and think God's love you. No, you learn the details of God's love in the scripture. That's where you hear about it. But do you experience that? Do you reflect on that and think about it? I remember um, years ago hearing a, a, a preacher say, and I think about this regularly. He uh, read the passage where Jesus is being baptized. And uh, it's kind of interesting. All three members of the Trinity are there, right? God the Father booms from heaven. The Spirit descends like a dove, and Jesus is coming up from the water. And as Jesus is coming up, the Father booms from heaven and says this, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And the preacher said, if you're a Christian, if Jesus is your savior, the father says that exact statement to you. You're my child, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Do you think about that? Does that kind of melt your heart? Does that change your perspective? It kind of gives us text for all the songs that we sing. We come and we read the lyrics and sing the lyrics. Well, yeah, the scripture is underneath that. Remain in Jesus' word. Remain in God's love. That's our part. Are we cooperating with this process? Or are we kind of working against the process or ignoring the process? If, if you haven't built into your lives ways for his word to remain in you, you're not reflecting on his love for you, then you're not cooperating with the process set up in John 15. Well, that's kind of what the father, or that's what the son does. That's how it operates. But there's one last part to the passage. And this is the part that comes up first, but I thought I'd put it at the end because it's the painful part. You don't want the painful part up front. Yeah, this whole process, this connection is nurtured by the father. It's nurtured by God. Now, that, what's that process called? Well, that process is called uh, pruning. Now, there are lots of things in this world that I am completely incompetent. Pruning's one, gardening's one, digging into there, all that stuff. But I have read, so let me tell you what I know. <laughs> Pruning increases fruitfulness. Pruning increases health. Now, how do we actually prune? Well, think of a rose bush. I think vines work the same way. Think of a rose bush. If you never prune a rose bush, you'll probably get lots of lots of mediocre or less than mediocre roses. 
It'll produce all these little scrubby things, right? And as time goes on, the bush will get kind of all tangled up together and the branches, the, the leaves will kind of grow in on itself. And there won't be enough sunlight, won't be enough nutrients coming. And so you won't get really great roses. You'll get the kind of mediocre or lousy roses because the bush is kind of growing in on itself. So what does the gardener do? What does the rose bush pruner do? He or she cuts out the branches that are growing in on themselves. And in fact, he or she cuts the branches away that are growing in and nurtures those that are growing out because the branches that are growing out can receive more sunlight. And as they grow out, more sunlight allows them to take the juices from the plant and produce beautiful great roses, right? That's one thing to think about that with roses or vines. It probably works the same way. That's pretty painful when you think about your life, isn't it? My guess is if you were to walk into a rose garden after the, and, and if we could hear what rose bushes say, my guess is right after the pruner went through, there'd be lots of weeping and crying and, oh, right? Lots of agonizing in the rose garden. Lots of bloodshed dripping from all the stems. Yeah, pruning's painful to the rose. I was reminded of that, uh, I guess about a week ago, um, somebody who's been coming to a, a small group, uh, another small group that I'm in, um, he died Friday evening. But over the uh, past couple of weeks, um, someone else in the group shared his story from college. And here's a story from college. He was a really bright guy, went to college. He was a bio major, biology major, because he wanted to become a veterinarian. He set his sights on being a vet. He was taking all these bio courses and he's doing great. He's going to be a veterinarian. He's going to work with animals. Acing all of his courses. Well, his senior year, he does a veterinary internship. During his veterinary internship, he discovers he's severely allergic to pet dander. Conclusion, live on drugs or find another occupation. He became a social worker and worked with high school students for decades. Can you imagine the pain, the anger, frustration, disappointment that he must have gone through as a senior in college? And yet at the end of his life, he looked back and said, God knew exactly what he was doing. This is what I was built for. Pruning's painful. The gardener knows what he's doing. What do we do? Cooperate. Cooperate by letting his word remain in us. And we do that by gathering with his people, connecting with them. We connect with Jesus, figure out how to do we connect with his word. We connect with his love. We reflect on that and we cooperate with the pruning, trusting the gardener, not trusting ourselves. That's how we produce fruit, not for our own benefit, but fruit that gives life and nourishment to others. Think about it. The vine 
does not produce clusters of grapes for its own benefit. In fact, if, if, the, if the grapes were never picked and consumed by other people, making wine to bring them joy, providing nourishment, if they all just fell from the vine, the fruit rotted, the seeds germinated, if nothing was done to benefit others from the fruit, the fruit would actually wind up destroying the vine that produced it because it would choke out all the light and nourishment from the vine. We're fruitful to provide life and nourishment to others. Oh yeah, that brings us to the second half of connect. We connect with God so that we connect with others and bring benefit with them. We stand as we pray. Father, thanks for the picture. And even though in our world, we'd probably come up with other ones because we're not real familiar with vineyards and vines and clusters of grapes and fruit. But Lord, we get the point of the passage. Connection brings life. Connection brings growth. Connection requires pruning. Lord, help us to cooperate with you in that process rather than work against you and compete with you in the process. We pray in the name of Jesus, the vine. Amen.